Hey, what's up, podcast? Today, I have Dr. Scott Sigmund with me, and we talk about opioids, the opioid epidemic, and we talk about Dr. Sigmund and his opioid sparing surgery treatments. So stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hey, Rami, it's really great to be here. appreciate the opportunity. So yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Scott Sigmund. Uh, I am an uh, opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon, healer of knees and shoulders left and right, and self-proclaimed social media maven. You're a fellowship-trained uh, sports orthopedic surgeon, and you have a special interest in opioid-sparing surgery, which is something that you're pretty passionate about from what I've seen. Yeah, I mean, I've been in clinical practice for over 25 years. I did my sports medicine fellowship at the Curlin Job Orthopedic Clinic in Los Angeles. We took care of all the, all the pro teams out there. And you know, and where I practice here in, in Lowell, Massachusetts, was really exceptionally hit hard with this opioid crisis. And so, about five years ago, uh, really started looking into the idea and the concept: Can we do, you know, opioid sparing surgery? Can we minimize these opioids, which are so incredibly addictive? I think that, yeah. you know, nobody taught nobody taught me in medical school 25 years ago that opioids were addictive. We, we had no idea. It was the opposite back then. They were trying to push for opioids, actually. Like around 95, I think, that's when they really started to push to... Uh, there was a study from... Uh, There's this whole thing at Purdue, I guess. That's where it started out, where they came out with uh, OxyContin. And yeah, then, it's, and so like literally like there was this, this middle ground PhD candidate who basically wrote this two-sentence letter in right. some document, and that's the one that the OxyContin manufacturers sort of ran with. And then all of a sudden, everybody's telling us that opioids you know, aren't addictive. Right. It's funny. I was watching some commercials uh, because of the, the, the recent suicide with Anthony Bourdain. There was a segment, uh, I think it was on CNN or somewhere, and they were talking about how this opioid epidemic started and they started playing these commercials uh, from back in the day and it's actually kind of funny in a way that that was even legal that they could do a commercial like that and say hey you know this is not addictive at all there's a less than one percent chance of anyone becoming addicted and there was this real strong push to say, and it, it, it wasn't really backed by any evidence. There was no real evidence. Like you said, there was that one-liner, and it was from. It wasn't even from an actual published, uh, you know, research article. Yeah, I mean, you're dead on, and uh, and then they started running with it, you know. And so, it, again, you know, doctors for the most part, we're good people, right? We're healers. We right. want to help our patients. We like to we think so. To- yeah, exactly. Now, there's some bad apples out there. We yeah. all know that. There's some docs that have Larry really Nasser. T- taken advantage of these of, of people and the process. But for the most part, we were just doing what we were what we thought was right. You know, it turns out that opioids are highly addictive. You know, 20 percent of people that take a 10 day course of, of opioids are already showing signs of addiction. Mm-hmm. And we really have no way to predict who that individual is going to be. And so. Uh, our philosophy became quite clear about four or five years ago. Let's just not find out who that who these people are. Let's just try and make them opioid naive and still provide them great pain relief for their surgery, but we're just going to do it with other ways. And mm-hmm. it, w- it was not very well received early on, I can tell you. You know, mm-hmm. doctors have are very slow to make change. Right. I think you know that. Yeah. And you learn Especially in medicine, is way slower yeah. than any other field. Hundred percent, and so you know, it's been it's been really difficult to get people to think differently. And even for myself, you know, 
when I was first in, in practice, you know, we'd have these no pain medication lists and we were like, man, these people don't give any medicine to this dude. He's a bad dude. He keeps calling, but mm-hmm. he's not a bad dude. He's, he's just one of the 20% that got addicted. And so, yeah. you know, so it takes a wholesale change of philosophy as you're treating your patients to say, these are not bad people. They just got addicted to the medication and we help create that. Right, right. And so I, th- I wanted to bring this up. There's this uh, interesting thing I was reading not too long ago, and it was about uh, the idea we have about addiction and how, you know, the modern theory we have about addiction is that it's purely a chemical reaction within the body. Uh, well, that, that was like the, that was the old belief. And now uh, we kind of have a more multidimensional look at addiction. You know, we look at people's uh, social life, their you know, environment, their cage, things like that, what's going on in their life, and that plays a big role. And the people that are in that 20% are probably people with other things going on in their lives as well. Yeah, I think that's a great point. If you look, if you take a look and you dive in deep to, to, the, to the people that wind up becoming addictive, there's a, there's a certain number of groups that you can help to select out. So, you know, for example, the veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder are more likely to, to have opioid dependence. Uh, ba- the bariatric population, so the patients that have significant weight issues that are then undergoing surgical intervention, they have addictive pe- potential across all aspects of their life. The one that is really the most scary and the one that has really been the one that has been the most devastating is the athlete. So mm-hmm. high-end competitive athlete who can push himself, him or self, beyond a normal and sort of compete at the, at the highest level oftentimes is one that is also potentially addicted as well. So there's some personality and then family history issues as well, obviously. Mm, that's interesting. So those yeah. are the ones, you know, we've heard that story. I'm sure everyone has. You know, every time I give one of these lectures, I always ask everyone to, to stand up in the room. And I, I cross the country lecturing on this type of surgery. And I ask everybody to stand in the room. And I say, please remain standing if you know someone that's been affected by the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. And everyone remains standing. Yeah. And so, you know, the tragic is that 18-year-old kid, high school star, he's got a scholarship to go to BC to play football, tears his ACL. Is given opioids. Six months later, he's dead from a bad bad dose of heroin. Yeah. You know. And yeah, this is sat. this topic is very close to me because I had a friend uh, of mine, a really good friend from high school, that passed away from you know opioids, something that he got from the doctor. And I still remember you know like the effect that it had on his family, the effect it had on us. So I mean, almost everyone I know knows someone at least that's been affected by it. So it's something that is, and it's more. It's a thing that's it's 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 an epidemic here in the U.S. More than you know, like when I talk to my family abroad, they don't really hear too much of these kind of tragedies. It's more of a thing that's happening here. So it, it is absolutely American phenomenon. Yeah. I think that uh, you know, uh, there's no other industrialized country in the world that has this epidemic. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm, I've been asked to teach, uh, to present at a course in Dublin, Ireland, specifically on opioid sparing surgery, so it does exist elsewhere, but not to the degree. You made, you made a really important point, and one of the stats that really blows my mind is that four out of five uh, heroin users, new heroin users will tell you they started on prescriptive medication, mm-hmm. prescriptive opioids. Now, whether that's directly from, from the doctor for themselves or the dispersion effect, which is even a, a bigger problem, where you know doctors were prescribing 40 pills, 60 pills, 
and then the average person maybe takes 10 of them, and you got 50 sitting in the medicine cabinet. Yeah. Guess what? All the kids know where it is. They run to the medicine cabinet. They grab the pills. And then you got 10 more kids that weren't even prescribed the medication that have a 20% chance of being addicted. So mm-hmm. really wiping out that that prescriptive practice is also one of the main things that I teach yeah. as, I, as I travel. Yeah. There's a, the, there was this report that I was just reading, and it, uh, one of the doctors outlined that every year, I'm not sure if it was every year or just overall, but 250 million opioid prescriptions are filled every year. It's, cr- it's crazy. It's like, it's like 50 times more than any of the other industrial countries put together. Yeah. That's how crazy it is. That's nuts. You know, and then, and, and I, I keep looking back, you know, I was, I was thinking about this, right? I'm like, how do we get here? You know? So one of the things I look back on is like, you know, pain is a vital sign, right? Yeah. We have these vital signs. What's a vital sign? You know, it's something you can measure, yeah. right? It's blood pressure. It's your pulse, you know, it's your oxygen. You can measure it one way or the other. Yeah. Some genius came up with the idea of making pain as a vital sign. It's the most subjective thing you could possibly do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and then we're told our patients have to be completely out of pain. Yeah. Zero out of ten. The only way you make somebody zero out of ten pain with opioids is if they're they're knocked out because yeah. they're unconscious. You know. Yeah. I had a mentor once tell me that if you reduce fifty, if you put, reduce a patient's pain by fifty percent, you've reached the maximum that you can reduce their pain. You can't reduce it more than because there's a psychological component to pain as well. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well, um, so now you're doing, so now, how did your efforts start towards this? Um, how did you first get into this opioid sparing surgery that you do? Where, like, where did this kind of stem from for you? So fortunately, I have a, a partner, Dr. Dave Perbilla, who likes to read every journal known to mankind. So I don't have to. Because <laughs> I hate reading. What do they, you know, what do they say? How do you, you know, how do you hide money from an orthopedic surgeon? You, you put it in a book, right? Uh, so, but uh, no, my, my good buddy, Dave, who reads every arth- arthroplasty journal, uh, came up to me one time and they, uh, they all call me Siggy. He's like, Siggy, you know, have you seen this new medication? It's called uh, Exparel, which is liposomal bupivacaine. You inject it into the surgical site and you can numb somebody up for two to three days. So I'm like, Wow. I'm like, that yeah. sounds cool. So we had a really progressive hospital administration, which was quite unique. Most hospitals have been pushing back on using this type of, of medication because it's more expensive than standard techniques. So it adds about $350 to the cost of a surgical intervention. Now, a total knee replacement costs about $25,000. So $350 doesn't sound like a lot of money at that right. twenty-five, right? But Fortunately, our hospital was progressive. They recognized we had an opioid epidemic in our area, and they wanted to try and do some stuff, and they allowed us to, to start going forwards. And it took us about six months, but after about six months, we really honed in our techniques really well, and the nurses were, like, blown away. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was only Dave and I doing it, but there's about eight other orthopedic surgeons that also do knee replacement, and they could exactly tell who were, who were the uh, Probilla and Sigmund patients. Yeah. And then it just started growing, and... From there, the majority of my work is really outpatient surgery. So I moved it into the surgery center where I work, and I started developing protocols for the shoulder and for the knee for outpatient surgery. And uh, it was just a long road, you know, pushing forwards. And this medication, Exparel, I liken it to to uh, the Grateful Dead and licorice. You know, <laughs> you you either love it or you hate it. You know, it's funny. There's about 800 published journal articles in the literature about use of Exparel. 
The thing is, it really needs to be used correctly. It needs to be mixed correctly. It needs to be put into the right spots. And if you're not doing it and using it in the right way, the results are off. So what we've done and what I'm super proud of is we have really developed very specific protocols now for surgical intervention. So I'm a member of the advisory board for shoulder arthroscopy for Exparel as well as for ACL surgery. I'm actually doing a webinar tonight specifically uh, teaching that as well. And we've developed these cookie cutter programs now. So literally a surgeon can learn this within 24 hours and practice and become an opioid sparing surgeon immediately. Okay. Awesome. So what were the, so you talked about a couple of the bad, what, what are some of the bad effects that could happen from this? I know that there's good. Is there any drawbacks to it? So uh, not really. I mean, it's an anesthetic. I mean, we, we know we've had local anesthetics forever in surgery, right? Yeah. No matter what we, what we do, it's a commonly used thing for, for decades. The problem with local anesthetics as a general rule is they don't last very long. It's okay. the time in which they last. So I talk about surgery and the storm of pain. So what does that mean? Really, it's the first 72 hours after surgery where pain is the worst. So what we want to try and do is develop a method that can get somebody through that 72 hours. So by the time that 72 hours goes away, the pain's not nearly as bad as it was at the time of surgery. And then you're, you're able to tolerate that pain with Tylenol and Motrin. So there's really not great side effects associated with the uses. That's the beauty of this. It's right. really just a local anesthetic, very safe and effective uh, for sure. And then we use... The other thing that we use, which is, is really nice, is that we use a multimodal approach for pain, right? There's many w pathways that you can help with patients that have pain. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't have to be an opioid. It could be an anti-inflammatory. It could be Tylenol. It could yeah. be uh, other medications as well. So we've developed a multimodal approach for the post-operative pain, giving patients help for, for pain relief without necessarily taking opioids. Okay. Awesome. So what about, so are you identifying high-risk patients and then... Um, recommending these patients do the opioid sparing surgery or are you just kind of is it just all-encompassing everybody's getting this as far as I'm concerned every single patient I touch is a high-risk patient because there's okay. really no no way to predict it I've actually become you know sort of a favorite son for the substance use disorder world so uh, I've, I've become known as the doc that will operate on you that has a history of substance use disorder and get you through it without necessarily giving you opioids. So we have a lot of patients. So those are, are highly selective patients which we that seek us out. But as far as I'm concerned, every patient that I'm operating on is potentially addicted to opioids, and I use this approach for every single patient. Awesome. So I'm wondering, um, so how well is their pain controlled after the surgery? Because that's probably people's biggest concern. They don't want to be in pain after surgery. Um, are they pretty satisfied after? Are they in any pain at all? Yeah, great question. I mean, I don't want people to think that I'm like inhumane and I'm like yeah. slicing and dicing on people with saws and stuff and I'm not, I'm, I'm not giving you pain medication. Yeah. Uh, our patients are very comfortable and they're very pleased. There was an interesting study out of the Rothman Clinic where basically all they did was have a conversation with patients about trying to reduce opioids they reduced opioids by 50% just by having the conversation. I will tell you it's the exact opposite for me. When I sit down in a room and I have a conversation with every patient I'm operating on, in the, in, the, in the office before surgery, in the holding room at the time of the surgery, and then after surgery as well, and I have that, this, here's the, how the conversation goes. I want to know about your concerns, about what your expectations are for your pain, and I'm going to tell you about what mine are. But most importantly, 
opioids are highly addictive and, and the air goes out of the room. You can see their shoulders sort of sink back and they look and they look at me and say, you know, I really want to thank you, Doc, because I have a cousin, I have a coworker, I have a brother, right. I have someone that's been affected by this. So it's the exact opposite. They're very happy. They're typically yeah. very pleased to have the conversation. Beautiful. All right. Um, so you've been pushing to kind of uh, get this you've, in Congress uh, or through legislation. Um, what are your goals through that right now? Yeah, that's great. So um, I was a, a part of a white paper that was just released by the uh, House Ways and Means Committee uh, where I sent in letters and also helped to sort of uh, lobby Congress. I've been to Washington, D.C. as well. The problem is is that a lot of these the medications that we're using are more expensive than traditional opioids. Opioids are really cheap. That's why you know a lot of hospitals and, and doctors have used them because they're so inexpensive. So they're more expensive. The problem is is that the, the federal government, as well as commercial payers, are not recognizing those and not carving out. So what we want to do is we want to say, hey, look, do your surgery, doc. You know, here's your check for your surgery for the hospital for whatever. But, you know, here's a, here's a check for the opioid sparing approach. Because if you take a look, you know, you said it beautifully before, you know, how this crisis affects. It affects, you know, the loss of life, the families that have lost, you know, loved ones as well. How about the societal cost economically from this epidemic? Mm. Uh, there was a recent study out of um, out of the Brigham and Women's Hospital where they took a look at ICU-associated deaths from, ovio, uh, from opioid overdose. It's $90,000 for an ICU opioid death. There were literally 140,000 deaths. It's $2 billion worth of monies being spent on the backside of this epidemic. So my argument is, we gotta we gotta do preventative medicine. Mm -hmm. We and have to spend money on the front side of the epidemic. What's also interesting is that the, um, so I was watching this documentary on the opioid crisis, and a lot of these people that start off on opioids and try once they can't afford them anymore, they start doing self harm. Some of them will bash their hands with a bat, you know, do like these ridiculous things that you know are causing real trauma so they can go back and say, hey, look, I have something wrong with me. I need these opioids. So there's that effect too, you know? It, it, it's everywhere, man. I'll tell you. I, I will tell you this. It's the most liberating thing that I've done in clinical practice because as an orthopedic surgeon, we cause a lot of pain. And then we also see patients that have had injuries that have a lot of pain. And so we were, we were you're a pain management specialist. If you're an orthopedic surgeon oh, yeah. and you're and you're practicing standard opioid technique, you you're managing pain, man. You're you're writing prescriptions over and over again, you're weaning people off of the medication, and it takes a big chunk of your time in life. Mm -hmm. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. Because because we we just don't refill opioid prescriptions because the patient not because we're being mean, it's yeah. because the patients just don't need it. Yeah. So for what about for something I've seen a hip replacement and it is brutal. Um, yeah, yeah. How does how, how does how do you control that much pain with uh, what you're doing? How like yeah. I want to understand kind of like how this uh, opioid sparing surgery works. All right, so great. So there's the, the it's really about the nerves that you're hurting, right? It's the injury that you're creating to the patient at the time of the surgery. Yeah. You're, right. you're and then you want to basically numb up all those nerves that you've hurt. So what you do is you take this medication and you then expand it to a volume that will cover the surgical field. You inject the skin. 
you inject the tissues below, you inject the muscles, you inject the bone, all of the areas that have been injured. And then what we'll also typically do is do a little bit of a nerve block around where we know the neuroanatomy is. So we know that that nerve lives right there. So what we do is we numb up that nerve too. And so that process numbs up these nerves for 48 to 72 hours, the block wears off, and patients are like, it doesn't hurt that much anymore. And they don't need the opioids. Can, but and they're not weight bearing anyways after a procedure. Oh no, they like are. So. They're weight. They're, no, they're so. these. These. This is awesome. They're weight bearing taller. My patients oh. after a total knee so replacement, they're walking down the hallway. Oh, they want. So that's what I was wondering. Does that affect their? Uh, you know, because you're numbing up all the nerves. Does that affect their weight bearing ability or anything like that? They're all sensory nerves. We're not. We're not okay. doing any okay. of the motor nerves, so they have complete motor control of their leg. Okay. So yeah, so we're not so worried at know. all. Yeah. yeah, it's great. It's great news. You can literally undergo a hip and knee replacement. Now you can be walking the day of the surgery. A lot of people are now even having that done as an outpatient. You come in in the morning, you know, get your get your supersized French fries and a hip replacement, and you're home by the <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so what, what's the most common? So you talked about doing this for athletes, uh, younger, younger people my age, you know, high school students. How, what kind of results have you seen with that? Have you Great seen, question. Especially yeah. within your community, which is what I'm wondering. Is there, has there been any studies? Have you guys noticed that, you know, this, this, the, the amount of uh, opioid addiction in the community has gone down because of this? Anything like that? Yeah, so not quite yet, because even believe it or not, even within my community, as me being this, you know, this uh, this great, um, you know, um, proponent of this type of technique, a lot of the local surgeons that I work with don't use it because they are still in the process of being educated. I can tell you that uh, as we just put together a protocol that's going to be available for all surgeons across the country on how we use this medication for ACL surgery. We have monitored my last 20 patients for an ACL surgery, which has typically been a very painful operation. Mm-hmm. The last 20 patients, 18 have had zero post-operative narcotics and two had three or four pills. So that's a huge wholesale change compared to when you're giving out 30 and 60 pills and most of these kids requiring refills as yeah. well. Yeah. So we're going we're gonna to do a study. We have an interesting thing happening. You know, I'm a part of Governor Baker's commission on on pain management, uh, and it's a funny story. So I'm in a closed-door meeting with the governor, and uh, he's got like 10 or 12 people in the room, a bunch of people that are making like new medications that are non-opioid. It's his big passion trying to do opioid you know, minimization as one of his kids was affected by this. And uh, he looks over, and he's like, he's like, Siggy, so what are you doing up there at Lowell General? You know, why? I don't understand it. I said, <laughs> You know, well, here, you know, look, here it is, Governor. We have these ACL surgeries. And it's about thirteen thousand dollars. He's like, well, how much is the stuff, the secret sauce you use? How much is that? I'm like, <laughs> the well, secret it's, sauce. Like, it's like it's three hundred fifty bucks, Governor. He's like, all right, so it's a thirteen thousand dollar operation. You're adding three hundred fifty bucks. That doesn't sound like a lot of money to me. I'm like, bingo, <laughs> you know. And he's the former CEO of Arbor Pilgrim Health Insurance, so he knows health insurance. Right. So. You know, there's a people are really now finally starting to recognize. There's some great news out of Aetna and Cigna. They're working diligently with the the Xperel folk, 
And it sounds like there may be an announcement coming out that all patients now that are part of these insurance plans will be covered by XRL potentially. That's again, I don't have, I'm not privy to the news, but there's rumors about that. How cool is that? Now a commercial payer recognizes this, so every case now can be covered. It'll be a carve out, mm-hmm. you know, like a prescription for your for the medications after surgery. It'll be a prescription for you to be used, so we can use this technique without worry about cost. Here's what I'm wondering: Has there has there been any resistance from big pharma or like, you know, the obvious beneficiaries of opioids? Uh, you know, have you have you seen any resistance? Because obviously, I, think, yeah. I feel like big pharma wants opioids out there. I don't I know. Maybe that's a bold statement to make, but I don't know. I'm just kind of I'm curious. You're in it. You you've probably seen. Yeah, no, I think your your point's great. I think they definitely did in the past, uh, but I think they're running scared now. I mean, you can't you pick up a paper now every day, and some attorney general is suing somebody. I just read something today that Walmart's getting sued uh, by the AG of North Carolina or some other place because of the con- contribution that Walmart had to opioids in the process. There's one. There's some really good news that's happening right now, which I think is pivotal to why we're we're really sort of seeing a, a change in the in the in the tide as far as how we're managing these patients. There's a major shortage of IV uh, narcotics right now. So I love stories. I'm sorry if I keep telling stories, but no, that's my stories. Stories are you know? awesome. <laughs> yes. So, so right now there's a major shortage in Demerol, Dilaudid, and fentanyl in the manufacturing process. And For so, people that don't know what those are, those are just uh, you know pain medications that are yeah. IV. I've, so they give it to you during surgery because yeah. stuff hurts and you can't take anything by mouth, so they have yeah. to give it to you another way. So there's a major shortage going on. So the, so at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, again, arguably you know one of our country's greatest hospitals, they've been very much against the use of Exparel because of the expense, adding it to the expense of their pharmacy budget. So the pharmacist, what's what's is it was it Breaking Bad? What's the thing when the guy's in the truck and he's mixing all the the the, the medications? What's that show? Breaking uh, Bad, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the the lead pharmacist of Brigham and Women's Hospital is downstairs in the pharmacy underneath the hood, mixing narcotics old school because there's none available to treat the patients in the hospital. He picks up the phone and calls the the representative from for Exparel and says. You guys are on formulary tomorrow. Get down here and show, show us how to use this stuff. <laughs> so it's pretty cool. There's been some, you know, very very positive things that have happened with big pharma. Whether it's on purpose or by accident, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, probably probably on purpose. They they're starting to pick. It. They're starting to realize what's going on. Yeah, no, they're, they're feeling the heat. Yeah, for sure. Um, so so here's um, for our audience. You know, maybe there's some mothers out there grandmothers you know maybe people are kind of looking out for their own mothers or something like that so people who have a loved one that may be undergoing surgery um and they're worried about their loved one getting an opioid or worried about you know possible side effects things like that or how much pain their parents or their kids are going to be in um what would you tell them and what are some options for them yeah, great question. One of the things I'm most proud about about my opioid sparing campaign was I par- was a part of the Choices Matter campaign. So um, basically, I re- went around uh, uh, the country. Um, uh, why am I Why am I blanking? With Gabby Reese, who is this amazing superhuman of a woman who is a, a professional volleyball player, model extraordinaire, TV spokesperson. She's married to Laird Hamilton. She had 
knee replacement surgery that didn't go so well because she tried to do it without opioids and she didn't have Expirel. Mm-hmm. So they sought her out. She became a spokesperson. So the two of us sort of traveled. We did live TV. We did uh, recorded TV. I'm a, I know you saw me on the doctor show, right, Robbie? Right? Uh, I'm going to do that right as, as soon as we get on, <laughs> as soon as we get done with this. <laughs> the, only person, the only person that ever says yes is my mother and my wife, but that's okay. <laughs> so, uh, so sure enough, we did all these shows together, and the Choices Matter campaign was specifically put together to empower patients, mm-hmm. to let patients know that you have a choice in your post-operative pain management. And it's scary, right? You go to a doctor, you're not sure what to say. Well, there's a website, planagainstpain.com, where you can go to, and you basically just sort of, it asks you some basic questions about what you're looking for. Is it a loved one? Is it you? How old are you? What's the surgery that you're looking for? And then basically it'll give you a printout of about 10 questions that you can bring with you when you go to the doctor. That, so you're more sophisticated. You have a better understanding as to what you're looking for. And there are opioid-sparing surgeons like myself all across the country now. It's no longer the wild, wild west, and there's just a few of us here and there. I mean, it's really become established practice. Every day, more and more doctors are converting. So ask your doctor very specifically, you know, are you an op- can, can you give me opioid-sparing options for surgery? Is that available to me? And go to this website. So, you know, I'm professing to doctors. We're trying to educate them. We're trying to educate patients. It's all hands on deck with this epidemic, really trying to change the way in which we think about this. Does this apply to general surgeries as well? Yeah, so generals, it's a cry. So the beautiful thing about this medication, it's about all subspecialties. So even, you know, even for OBGYN uh, procedures now, you can do it for general surgery. They're doing it for spine surgery. It's being used in plastic surgery. The medication itself is indicated for injection into a soft tissue or bone site. It's not indicated for a specific surgical intervention, right. which is awesome. So, you know, we have a lot of education for the, at the doctor's levels amongst all specialties. Okay. All right. So any recommendations for parents, you know, when they're trying to find a provider that does this or, you know, um, you know what things they should ask, what they should look for? Yeah. So I think that the first thing you want to do is when you go to your doctors, you, you want to say, look, I'm, I'm really concerned about opioids and just express that as the, one of the first line treatments. Mm-hmm. And then you want to ask your doctor, what are your options, you know, for pain management? Do you have the option of doing opioid sparing or can we do this without opioids? You just say that. Can I have my child have surgery without using these terrible opioids? What are my options? Mm -hmm. If the doctor says, you know, that's not something that I do or I'm not familiar with, you can ask the doctor, are you familiar with another doctor that is? You have the right to be able to do this. And I think that, you know, even within my community, for example, I mean, we have 13 orthopedic surgeons in the community of which half, half use the medication and the other half don't. We, and most of us do the very similar operations. So you have the right to find a doctor that's going to be holistic in the treatment of your individual, of your of your family member. It's not mm-hmm. just the surgery. It's all the other aspects before, during, and after that you have a right to be able to have good treatment. So, so just, it's okay. Ask the doc. Hey, doc, what are the options here? I want to try and do this without opioids. Awesome. So, uh, Dr. Siggy, Dr. Siggy or Dr. Sigmund, what are we going for? Dr. Sigmund, you can call me Siggy, it's all good. Okay. <laughs> I like Siggy, it sounds cool. <laughs> yes, I've got, that's, my, that's my Instagram world. I'm like known as Siggy on Instagram. We do lots of fun stuff there. All right, cool. Uh, so, Dr. Sigmund, any last things you want to uh, kind of uh, reach out to our audience and tell them about? Yeah, I, I think that uh, the most important thing that I want to tell everybody here quite clearly is that no matter what we do, surgery is painful. Mm-hmm. 
we really can never fully take away your pain. What we're going to try and do is we're going to minimize that pain for you. We want to safely and effectively take you through your surgical experience, minimizing your risk to opioids, allowing you to become healed and on in your life without having to become the next person that's a part of this epidemic, this horrible opioid epidemic. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Sigmund. Um, had a great time talking with you. Um, you've provided some really valuable information, and I'm sure people are going to really benefit from listening to this episode. How can, how can people connect with you or learn more about what you're trying to do, um, maybe on your Instagram or on your website? Yeah, that's fantastic. So my website is www.scottasigmandmd.com. So I like to hit all aspects of social media. So, so you know, the parents and the grandparents are all on Facebook, so I'm all over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, my kids all follow me on Instagram, so my Instagram handle as well, add on Facebook, is Scott A. Sigmund MD. And then if you're in the business world out there, I have a huge following on LinkedIn as well, where I'm constantly showing videos and the success stories and the testimonials of the patients, which are the ones that we care about the most, really being able to show our successes with this technique. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Dr. Sigmund. All right, brother. Great to see you. Appreciate the opportunity. Hey, podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I hope we brought you some practical, good advice that you can apply to your life. Guys, if you could please do us the favor of sharing this, telling people about it, leaving us a comment, subscribing, all that will help us grow and help us spread our message. Also, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can go to our website and click support and it will help us grow this podcast and continue doing what we are doing and bringing you more high quality guests like the one you just heard. Thank you guys. Peace.